you would, grab your Bibles and let's read our text this morning. John chapter 11. We're going to spend the majority of all of our time in 6 through 16, but I want to connect 5 with it. So we're going to read 5 through 16. Jesus is still away. He's not to Bethany quite yet. He's where John the Baptist began his baptism ministry, and that's kind of where we are. And uh, they're going to begin to make their way to Bethany. John eleven five. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And then... After this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. And after saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. And then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there. So that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. I don't know if you like road trips or not. Road trips are fun. They create good memories and then also some interesting memories if you've ever been on one and had a flat tire or something else along the way. Today we are going to see the very last traveling trip that Jesus will make with the 12 disciples. They have traveled all over the nation for over three years together, and this will be their very last one. He has been telling them for a while now that they will eventually get to Jerusalem, and everything that they have known and experienced with Him will begin to change. And they have no idea the depth of loss that they will initially feel in the pain that they will experience. Jesus has been a truth teller to them. They get this and understand it. But sometimes in our lives, we probably have all been there, your mind just doesn't want to go to a certain place. And they just don't want to go to the place to fully embrace that He is going to go to Jerusalem and everything He's been talking about in regard to Him dying is actually going to take place but it is going to do so. And so with each step toward Bethany that they will begin to take today, these will be the last steps that they will take together. Last dusty feet, last tired legs for this traveling missionary band of brothers. And before they arrive in Bethany, we will see today that Jesus has some very specific instructions for them in regard to how they need to be prepared and what they will need for the days ahead. And so these are the last key pieces that he will share on this journey. If you looked at the news and you looked at the internet today, um, this past week, it is a chaotic world. It is continuing to be this way in a world like ours right now. 
for those of us who are Christ followers and desire to walk in holiness and obedience with God, these are very crucial days in which we need His instructions to navigate the things that are happening around us. And so we're going to look at everything connected with this idea is that God is at work. God is moving. He is not static. He is at work. And so therefore we join Him in this. But there are some very key principles. Jesus is headed, beginning in this text today, at the end of December, at the end of John chapter 10, uh, He is in Jerusalem. They want to stone Him and arrest Him. He leaves for four months. We are in April. As we come to the text in John chapter 11, He is headed back to the Passover, likely in just a matter of weeks now. Jesus will go to the cross and He will die there. And so these are very difficult days for Christ. And so He is going to share with us really key traveling instructions that are connected with Him. And so let's look at the first one. And this is where we will spend the majority of our time because this is the one that is most critical in the world in which we are living today. And we're just going to look at the one verse, verse 6. So they send Lazarus is sick. He's not just fallen asleep. He doesn't have seasonal allergies. He doesn't have the cold. Lazarus, as they look at his life, is gravely ill. It is clear he is not going to make it. They know that Jesus loves Lazarus. Verse 5 speaks of this. This word love is agape. Earlier in John chapter 11 is another Greek word called phileo for love. So not only did he love them with a brotherly love, he loved them with God's love. And so they send news that you're the one you love as a brother and the one that you love with God's kind of love because you are the Messiah. He is about to die and we need you to come to Bethany to do something about it. And so Jesus decides he'll just hang out and do ministry for a couple of more days. And though his friend is at this state and there is much to learn about what Christ does here that are really critical for you and I to understand in these days. And so I want to talk, first of all, this morning, that those who travel with Jesus have to learn this principle. We must wait on God to move until we can leave where we are. So at times, God says, you wait, you stay where you are. And so we stay there. And then when it comes time for God to move and to begin to call us out from where we have been staying, that is the time that we go with Him. But all along, we must learn to wait. And so Jesus gets the news. He hears that Lazarus is ill. He knows the gravity of the moment. He can see it on the faces who have brought the news. He is also God. He knows the reality of what's going to take place. And He stays two days longer in the place where he was. Why? Why? Why did he stay? Here's the reason. Jesus has told us over and over, ever since John chapter 5, that he only said what the Father said, and he did the works that he saw the Father do. And so in this moment, the Father is telling Jesus, do not rush off to Bethany and do anything about this. You stay right where you are and continue to do ministry where you are by the Jordan River. And so he stayed. He did not move because the Father did not want him to do so. The Father wanted him to stay. And so here, Jesus models for you and I that we do not move without him. We wait until he moves 
and we join Him in that. And so because of the Father's will being this, Jesus delays and He stays before He begins to move to Bethany. And so He allows, watch this, it's hard for us to understand this, He allows the crisis in Bethany to rise. He allows it to become to an even more critical place because He has got something much grander in design is that He knows that He is going to arrive in Bethany and He is going to see the stone rolled away and He is going to speak and He will call forth Lazarus from the dead. So this delay by Christ is connected to the will of God and to the timing of God. And it flows out of the goodness of God and the love of God and God's design that Christ will get the glory in all of this. And so as he delayed, think about this with me, two sisters continue to watch their brother suffer and die. They go through the emotional pain and the heartache of the sickness and the illness and the death. But let me remind us that Jesus was fully aware of the situation. You see, he sees beyond the grief to the greater good and to the greater glory. This is who Christ is. He has that capacity to be able to do that. So this delay that is intentional here is not really a delay to him that is going to keep him from being able to do something about the situation. The issue is that for us, the delay is hard to wait at times for God to move. But He does see and He does know everything that is going on in our lives. Let me remind us that this is not just my opinion about this, but this is the teaching of Scripture. That God sees, that God is aware with His eye and with His mind and with His heart in regard to everything that is happening. Proverbs 5.3 says this, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Hebrews 4.13 No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Psalm 62, verse 8 Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart. Let your heart be known to God. God is a refuge for us. Time, in regard to Christ, with more of it or even less of it, is nothing to Him. It's not a problem. For Jesus does not have to move before something happens. Jesus can move after something has taken place. And this has always been the case and has always been true that God does what He does in His own way and in His own timing. His movement in our lives is not going to be based on whether or not we have successfully persuaded Him. But He will move when it is right, when it is good, to accomplish His great purpose. This is so important to know this. That Christ will move and He knows when to move. In the meantime, we have to trust in Him. And so Christ's great movement and power is not dependent upon something that he has to be there before an event happens, for he is able to do something afterward. He is not weak to the point where he is confined to time and something becomes too late for him. For us, 
things become too late for us in a sense. We miss an appointment. We miss this because we have delayed. But with Christ, there is nothing too late for Him. Even when He gets the news that His friend is gravely ill. And so they rush to Him. Jesus delays. For some, they could see this as potentially Christ being insensitive or is He being uncaring that He gets the news that one of His best friends on earth is about to die. In a time in our lives, these kind of moments, because of the pain, what we need more than anything is heaven's perspective on that. We can't see it because all we can see are the things that are in front of us. And sometimes it can kind of grow to a place where we sense it's too late. Can something be done? Can there be freedom? Or am I going to continue to live in the bondage in which I am living in? But Jesus can arrive. He can rescue. He can speak a word. And it is never too late. He is at work right now. Listen, did you notice the news this week? Chaotic world. Stuff going on in Israel. Stuff going on in our country. He is at work. He is moving. We cannot see fully everything that He is doing, but He is at work right now in the midst of the chaos and in the midst of the confusion. He may delay, but He is never late. And I also want to stress this. It is not wrong for Him in our perception to delay. God never does anything wrong. So if there's a perceived delay on our part, it's not because He is doing wrong. He is actually being perfect in every design that He is going to do. He is right on time. All of His purposes, all of His plans cannot be stopped by us. So we may perceive something, but He is not delaying. He is working everything out according to His purposes. This game of life in regard to God's purposes is not chess and checkers, where we make a move, God makes a counter move. No, God moves regardless of mankind. Mankind moves. We do not stop our God. And that's why we have great confidence in His sovereignty, that regardless of all of the stuff that we see, He is in control. And we can trust in everything that He is allowing and everything that He is doing. See, our issue is that we have adopted this mindset in prayer, particularly. Lord, I need You to do my will and I want You to do it now. That's what we do, right? You remember Jesus' most critical hour? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He is pleading over the reality and the stress, and the significance of the hour. And he's saying, Father, can this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not my will, Father, but your will be done. You see, in Christ's most critical hour, most stressful hour, where he literally sweats drops of blood, settles in the place where he says, no, not my will, but right now your will, Father, Be done in my life. You see, the waiting for the Christian, listen church, the waiting for the Christian does not mean that we just sit still and do nothing. 
The waiting for the Christian means this. We pursue God and walk in obedience. And we wait. We pursue Him. We love Him. We share the gospel. We invest. And we wait knowing that He will unfold His purposes in our midst. So the wait doesn't mean don't do anything. The wait means engage. Live. Follow Him. Pursue Him. I like musicals and I like plays. I don't go to as many as I would like to. But one of the ones, one of the things I like to do is I like to go to ones that I've never seen before. And one of my favorite aspects of plays and musicals is when the curtain closes and I know that we're going to next act. And I know that behind the scenes, there's all kinds of people back there. And when that curtain opens up again, everything's going to look different. We've entered into a new scene. See, our issue is that. Our, our thing is this. We can only see what's in front of us. But what, what I want to remind us of this morning is that behind the scenes, behind the curtain in the spiritual world, our sovereign, almighty, powerful God is at work. Now, while we may not be able to see it, because we're just seeing chaos and confusion and all kinds of things in front of us, He is at work. And one day, He will remove the curtain in a sense at times. And He does that at times. And He allows us to see what He's been up to. And we may look at 2020 and 2021 and wonder, what was God fully up to? There will be a time that will come where we will be able to see this is what God was doing in the midst of all of that confusion. In the midst of all of the world shutting down, we will be able to see God was moving things along according to His sovereign purpose. And this is why for us, we cannot get stuck in only the things that we see before us. We must embrace what the Scripture teaches, that He is ever at work. You see, we are so limited in our understanding, and that's where faith comes into play, that we trust Him in those moments. And if we're not careful... We will allow the apparent delay or the appearance of what we think is the delay of God as somehow He is being unloving. But that perspective is never true. He is always being loving. What we are discussing in these moments right now is what is called sometimes or can be led sometimes to a place called the dark night of the soul. It's what David experienced, King David experienced in the Psalms, if you've ever read those, where he just wet his sheets on his bed with tears, just crying out to God. God spoke to Judah and said, listen, or he spoke to Israel and Judah, you northern kingdom, you're going to go away. The Assyrians are going to get you, and Judah, you're going to go away. And, and this word that came through the prophets that, that God was going to judge Judah and there was going to be 70 years of captivity led Jeremiah to be known as the weeping prophet. That God had spoken. There was a condition that was going to be fulfilled because when God speaks, He fulfills His word and it was going to take place. And so Jeremiah, knowing this was coming, wept and cried out to God and he was known as the weeping prophet. And these this season of the dark night of the soul of waiting on God in the midst of a world of incredible chaos. They are, this, this is born out of a season of faith where it seems sometimes as if God is distant. God is not listening. God seems to not be interested in what is going on around us. And it can lead to, if you're not careful, to a darkness settling into a believer's life of thinking that God is 
not for his people, but God is always for his people. He just has a greater design than you and I even desire for ourselves. So I want you to notice I'm on the screen. Carl's going to put three verses up here for us, and here's the first one. I want to go to the Apostle Paul, and I want to show some really important things connected to this, that travelers with Christ, they learn to wait on Him. So what we are discussing, as I said, has been called the dark night of the soul, and then Paul writes about a unique thing about our lives. This is 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. Paul writes about believers that we, believers, have this treasure, Christ, the Spirit, God, salvation, dwelling in us in jars of clay. We are the jars of clay. To show that the surpassing power that is inside of us belongs to God and not us. We are not the power. Is the infinite power living inside of us? Absolutely it is, but we are still not the power. He is the power. So think about this. You've got a jar of clay that's got cracks in it. It's weak. It's made of clay. And God, in His sovereign, infinite wisdom, chose to put His almighty power and infinite infinite wisdom, not in boxes of gold and silver and precious jewels. He saw fit to put it in jars of clay. And as He does that, when you and I wrestle with the things of this life, Inside of those cracks, this infinite power is there and the light of Christ shines. And this infinite power is at work in weak vessels showing that God is at work in people. Accomplishing His purposes. Moving the world along. And so we have, look at it, we have this treasure, this unbelievable treasure in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Clay pots don't always understand what the power inside of us is doing, what He is up to and what He is working, but this infinite power of God is in broken vessels to reveal the glory of who He is. And here is the result of that power at work in us. These weak vessels become examples for God's glory. For when He moves, it reveals that God is almighty. And He can move in spite of all of our flaws, our imperfections, and the cracks inside of us. Because inside of us, something dynamic is at work. And it is the power and the presence of God. Now I find it interesting that from verse 7, Paul goes to verse 8 and 9 to describe the reality of our life. So look at 8 and 9. We, who have this infinite power in jars of clay in our lives, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. We are struck down, but we are not destroyed. This text It's so incredibly important from 7 to 9 to have us understand what's going on around us. We have no control on what's going on around us. But there is one inside of us in these jars of clay who is perfectly, sovereignly exercising His wisdom and His work to accomplish 
His purpose, and in Him we can trust. And so He communicates. Then in the moments of the dark night of the soul, as we continue to live in the brokenness of this world, there is a power at work in us leading us through as we wait on the final culmination of His salvation. Now let me talk about these things just for a moment. Look how Paul describes this reality. Christians have been, for the last 2,000 years, afflicted in every kind of way. They get sick. They die of the plague. They have hardships happen relationally. They have unbelievable things. Afflicted in every kind of way. But look at the promise there. There is a limit. But not crushed. We are afflicted but we are not crushed. And then at times, we are incredibly perplexed. I don't understand what God's up to. I don't understand what is happening and taking place in my life. But if this power that is inside of us, as we yield to allow His work to work in us, we are not driven to a place of despair. When we get to a place where like, there's no hope, Church, I want to remind you today there is so much hope right now in this moment in the midst of everything that is happening. We may be perplexed. We may have questions. We may not be able to understand what God's doing behind the scenes because we only see what is in front of us. But as this power works in us, we are not driven to a place of despair. Thirdly, at times believers are persecuted. And even in the persecution... They are not forsaken. And we're going to talk more about that at the very end. And sometimes we are struck down, Paul says, but we're not destroyed. I said this about a month ago, five weeks ago. I think it bears reminding this morning. Here on planet Earth, Christians don't always win. Christians lose job, they get fired. Christians are killed for their faith we're not uplifted all the time because of what we believe about who jesus is we may not win here but because our god is victorious and because he is in us and the spirit has been put in us a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance and our salvation listen church we we because of that connection to the infinite victorious god we ultimately whether we win here on earth, we win. We will spend eternity, for those of us who know Him, in His presence. So we're afflicted, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed at times, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but we are never abandoned, never forsaken. Sometimes we are struck down, but we are not destroyed. And I was thinking this week, this idea of being struck down sometimes is, is what we are seeing around us today particularly in the West. I saw a video this week um, from two weeks ago. A street preacher in, in England, I don't remember the town that it was, was standing on a box. And he wasn't railing on all this stuff. He was preaching on the biblical tenets out of Genesis about family and about marriage. You know what happened to him? They arrested him and put him in prison because proclaiming the biblical teaching from Genesis chapter 1 was offensive to people who view 
and had other perspectives of marriage and sexuality. And so some of this, some of this idea of being struck down is this idea of, of our culture telling us, stop believing those things, Christ followers. You can't say that. That is offensive. And so I want to remind us that when our world says stop and they want to strike us down and they want to tell us to not say anything, I want, I want you and I to be reminded that the gospel cannot be destroyed. So we speak, we live, we stand on the truth of Christ. And so notice this principle. And I spent the majority of my time here because this is the one that we really wrestle with. I'll be honest with you. In these days, I am saying, Lord Jesus, come, come. Come back and restore this world rightly. But it may be 150 years from now. And so what do Christ followers do for the next 150 years? We wait. And we trust that eventually He will bring a culmination to His intended purpose for the world, for His people. And so we wait and we trust. Those who travel with Jesus, we live in a broken world that is deeply in need of restoration. And I don't know if our country ever comes back again. We don't know that. That rests in His hands. We plead with Him to restore this nation again to a Christ-centered focus. But if He does not do that because He gets to do what He wants to do, if He doesn't do that, every Christ follower ever born in this country, growing up in this country, we wait. We live our faith and we wait. We live our faith and we wait and we trust. We still plead, we cry out, God move again in our nation. And regardless of what He does, we walk with Him. The gospel exploded under Roman oppression. The gospel could explode again in all the things that we see around us. And so I encourage us, let's cry out to Him to awaken our nation. Here's the second thing that I want us to see this morning. Is that not only do Christ followers wait, and as they wait, they walk. Listen to that. As they wait, they walk, this faith. As they wait, they walk. And as they walk, they've got to walk in the daylight, not in the darkness. Look at 7 through 10. So he gets the news. He waits a couple more days. And then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, we were just there. And they were seeking to stone you. Are you going to go there again? And here's how Jesus answered their question. Are there not 12 hours in the day? And if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now listen to this. You and I will be able to relate to this because we have grown up in a country, if you're a Christ follower, where for us it has been pretty relatively safe we are clueless about real persecution we don't have any idea about that and so listen to this lord we've remember end of december 
at the Feast of the Dedication, they picked up stones and wanted to stone you, and then they wanted to arrest you. And we left, and we've come out here. At the end of John 10, it describes this. They go to the place where John the Baptist began, began his ministry, and this is where Jesus closes his ministry. And as he gets to that place where John started the baptizing, all of these people began to come, and kind of a mini-awakening in those last four months happened. All kinds of people were coming at the end of John 10 and believing. Watch. Lord, it's really nice out here. Ministry's thriving. It's really good. It's great. Why don't we just stay out here? Why do you want to go back to where they wanted to stone you? And, you know, we're kind of connected with you. And why do you, why do you want to go back to that place? You know, our issue is we long for comfort, but comfort most often is an enemy of ours spiritually. The refining doesn't come in the great days. The refining comes when we are forced on our face to cry out to God. And so they kind of want to stay where it's kind of nice, ministry is thriving, and Jesus is going. So he listens to their perspective, and he speaks into their concern to define for them a second key principle for those who walk with Jesus and want to travel with him. They walk in the daylight. And so Jesus tells them they must have looked at each other with what? They have one question. Why do you want to go back to Jerusalem? And he gives them a little parable. Gives them a little parable about the daylight and walking. And so he communicates basically three things. He says, look, there's 12 hours in the day. There's a fixed amount of time. And so during the daylight, walk in the daylight. And thirdly, don't walk at night because at night in sin and darkness... You're going to stumble. And so let's talk about light just for a moment. What is light? And it's multiple things in the Bible in regard to defining light. But let me give you several of them. Jesus is the light. I am the light of the world, he said in John 8. Light also refers to the revelation of Christ, of who he is, the revelation of the Father. Light also in the book of Isaiah and other places, light refers to our salvation. Light has come, and it's brought salvation to people. In Him was light, and that light was the life of men in John chapter 1. Light also refers to the Word of God. Your Word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. So light refers to also to truth. So listen to this. Here's what Christ says. As you wait... I've been waiting. Now we're going to go. We're going to walk in the light. We're going to walk in the truth. You're going to walk in light of who I am. We're going to walk in light of who the Father is. And there are four implications. We're going to put these up on the screen for you. You ought to write these down. These are important. Text them to yourself. Four implications of 11, 7 through 10. One is this. Nothing, nothing, no one has the power to lengthen or shorten time time is fixed in god's purpose though god is not confined to time time is fixed in god's purpose and listen to what jesus is saying he is saying my life your life when, when speaking to the disciples the father was not about to shorten or lengthen christ's time he wasn't gonna, okay y'all just stay over on the jordan it's kind of safe 
You know, and I'll kind of tell you what to do. But there was a fixed time. There was an appointed time in which Christ was going to die on the cross. And there wasn't getting away from that or getting around that or delaying that. There was a fixed purpose. That is why Christ came. And so Jesus tells them, I have no concern whatsoever about those who want to stone me, who want to arrest me. They are not in charge of my life. This means that others, our government, COVID, any kind of illness, any kind of boss, any kind of robber, any kind of anything or anybody, any philosophy, if you are a Christ follower, only Christ is in charge of our life. That's who we submit to. He is sovereign, and we are in Him, and we belong to Him. We are to fear God. We are not ever to fear man. And so Jesus tells them, listen, when the Father wants me to go, I'm going, and you're going to have to come along with me. And I will remind us again, listen to this. We are not in our own lives and our families in control of time. We are not. We are also not in control. We've seen this. We've been gravely mistaken. We are also not in control of the ending of our time here on the earth. We are not. So this past year where we have avoided people so that we will not get something and die. And again, I'm not saying not to live wisely. Don't, don't go too far. But here's what I'm saying. If COVID is not in charge of our life, if a government is not in charge of our lives, if God is in charge of our life and our life is in His hands and we are to fear Him and not fear anything else, you know what we ought to do? We ought to live. We ought to live in Christ and, and, and know that whatever happens, I, I am not extending the length of time here on the earth. That does not belong to us. That belongs to Him. The writer of Hebrews says, there is a time appointed for man wants to die, and it is not in anybody's control but His. So Jesus is communicating in this this reality about your life. As you live your life, nothing can lengthen or shorten the time because God is sovereignly in control of things. Secondly, there is enough time, Jesus says, to get the work of the gospel done each day. Jesus knew that as he continued to walk in the Father's will, that he was here to do the work that his Father had asked him to do. And so he knew that as long as he was alive, he still had time to accomplish more of the Father's purpose in the world. And I'll say this to you and I, while there is time, which is today, this is the moment that we've got, there is time today. So let's proclaim Jesus today. I'm going to proclaim Him in the room today. I'm going to proclaim Jesus as the highest authority, the highest one that we are to believe in, to walk in, and to submit our lives to. And let's do that while there is still time. Let's get the work of the gospel going while there is time. There's enough time to do that. And He gives us the time that we need to be engaged in gospel living and gospel work. Thirdly, as the Christian waits, the Christian walks, not sitting, they live out their faith. And as, as we know that we cannot lengthen, we cannot shorten our time here, and He has given us enough time to know Him and to do the work. Thirdly, don't waste the time. Don't waste the time. 
the disciples were shocked that he wanted to return to Judea. And when he was a wanted man there, but Jesus says, he just says, listen, there's 12 hours. This was a figurative way for him to speak of the time that God had allotted for the Father, for Jesus to do his work. And best I can tell this morning, I think everybody's alive this morning. Some of y'all are acting like you're about ready to go to sleep. But I think for the most part, you are alive. And because we are alive right now on this Sunday, in this moment, in this room, we must embrace the opportunity and the moment and not waste it. We should lean in to the truth. We should lean in and worship Him. We should lean in and, and say, I will, I will not waste my days. I will embrace the truth that I am learning. And we will either utilize the gospel light in the time that we have been given, or we will waste it. So time cannot be extended. So we must quit wasting our life on time that doesn't matter. And I've talked to this before, and I believe that Satan loved 2020. When the fear of death and isolation and shutting of churches took place, and people were so divided over so many different things, and some people are still angry, and some people are still living fearful, and we have wasted days. And my responsibility is to speak into this room and just remind us that our life is in the hands of God. So fear Him. Walk in obedience with Him. And here's the fourth principle. Use the time to walk in the light, not the dark. See, Jesus is saying, you cannot lengthen or shorten the light of day for the Father has fixed it according to His purpose. And Jesus is saying, my life is in the Father's hands. Therefore, I will continue to walk in my Father's plan and purpose for me. So man cannot really do anything to me until the Father allows it at the appointed time. I'm going to continue to walk in the Father's light. I don't have to walk in fear. I don't have to be so cautious. For there will be no stumbling for me. For I will walk in obedience to my Father. And there will be, Jesus is saying, there will be no accidental steps for me because I walk with eternal purpose. I am in my Father's hands. So man cannot lengthen. Man cannot shorten my days. So I don't worry or nor am I the anxious God, man. I trust my Father. So we make the most of the time by walking with Christ in the truth. So listen to these travel instructions. Jesus headed to really dark days. He's going to die for the sin of the world. He's going to be beaten. He's going to be mocked. Crown of thorns. Carry His cross. He's waiting. He's been waiting until the Father in the fixed appointed time for Him to show up to Jerusalem to die. And when it comes time to go to Jerusalem, he doesn't say, can I just stay here? It's nice on the, the banks of the Jordan River. Father, we've got, we've got a good thing going here. People are coming to faith. No, son. It's time to go. And Jesus is like, yeah, let's go. And he calls the disciples to go with him. And they begin to walk in the daylight. Thirdly, this is so critical. Travelers must walk with spiritual 
discernment. Look at verse 11. So after saying these things, this proverb to them, he said to them, my friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. That statement enough is to indicate that Lazarus just isn't, had a hard day out in the field working. Okay, no, he would wake up the next morning. He just would go to sleep. And so he's even communicating something pretty clearly. People have come with the news that Lazarus is gravely ill. So when Jesus says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him, should have clued them. But, but look at verse 12. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. He's going he's to he's get up from this. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was talking about taking rest and sleep. So in 14, Jesus told them plainly, guys, come on, he's dead. Lazarus has died. You would think, and we have to be careful with this, that after three years, they would have come to eventually understand at times that when Jesus said things, sometimes there was a little underlying meaning and they needed to think a little bit more about what they were hearing, but they struggled with it and before we're real hard on them, we, we kind of do that too, don't we? Haven't we learned repeated lessons in the same areas for most of our lives? And so they're kind of here as well, and so sometimes we are like them. But let me deal with this before we wrap this up today. This is a critical one in the West. There is so much lack of spiritual discernment in the church today that we just, many, believe any and everything that are taught and written and blogged about. And Jesus in His day spoke about this, about the religious leaders. Listen to these words. They'll be familiar to you. Matthew 16, verse 1. And the Pharisees and Sadducees, they came to test Him. And they asked Him, Hey, show us a sign from heaven. And here's how Jesus answered them. When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for you look at the sky and you see that it's red. And in the morning, you say, it's going to be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. And then Jesus says these words. You know to how, how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. And I believe we live in a day right now where this is true of the American church culture. That we are not able to see the reality of the signs of the times. We have a clue about all kinds of stuff, but we don't look around connected with the truth and see that God is at work and He's doing things and we must connect our lives with them and Jesus tells these men y'all can't even interpret it the reality that the Messiah is standing in your midst you've come to test me and yet this morning you got up on this day to test me and you could tell whether it was going to rain or it was not going to rain by looking at the sky and knowing that and here I am the fulfillment of the scriptures that you have memorized and I am in your midst and you cannot interpret by looking at the things I've been saying and the things that I have been doing spiritual discernment is the ability to detect and see and hear what is true and biblical from that which is unbiblical and of error and this lack of discernment has come because of weak doctrine 
relativistic thinking and embracing the world's strategies for the church. And it has led to an incredible immaturity in the church. And people like me have been a big part of the issue for less than 30 to 40 years in this country. And I'm not going to be a part of it. I'm going to tell you the truth. And I'm going to call us to know the truth of God's word so that we can discern the falsehoods that are out there. And they are everywhere in the church. In the church. They are everywhere. I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm not really worried about stuff outside the church in regard to Christians. I'm always far more concerned about things inside of the church. Because that's where the falsehood and the lies become so subtle and deceiving. I've been asking the Lord for three things in these days. I've been asking Him to help me continually set Him in front of me that my gaze is fixed on His face. Secondly, I've been asking him to enable me to turn my heart from being too fond of worshiping anything connected to the creation and not acknowledging him as the creator. Thirdly, I've been asking him to enable me, even though I read his word all the time, that I want to deeply know the truth, not for knowledge, but I want to know and live it so that I can discern truth from error. My kids are older now, but one of the great things, my opinion, about being a parent of young kids are animated movies. I don't watch them ever anymore, rarely. But a number of years ago, there was one that was out. I don't know if you've seen it or not. If you're a grandparent, you may have seen it more times than you've wanted to watch it. It was called Inside Out, and it was a movie about the emotions inside of people. And about the middle of that movie, the little girl, I don't remember her name, that's kind of the main character that's there. and She's with a pink elephant and this other character, and they get on this train, and they're going to head back home, and there's a box on the train. And the box is full of these little plate, like license plate kind of things, shapes, big box. And inside of it um, are these things with all kinds of words in it. And, and the elephant gets excited and knocks the box over. And as they look at the box on the train, this is the line. So the box has been knocked over and the girl says, oh, see inside the back box were facts and opinions. Some of the things were facts. Some of the things were opinions. As the box was knocked over, the girl says, Oh, facts and opinions, they look so similar. And the pink elephant says, Don't worry about it. That happens all the time. And I want to say today that I, I'm concerned about that facts and opinions look the same and that God's people can't tell the difference. See, this is what I'm saying to us this morning is not my opinion. Jesus is telling the disciples who are going to be the first church planters. He is telling them that they must know the truth. They must be able to discern truth from error. And we must be concerned when the church cannot do this at large that there has been a loss of spiritual 
discernment. And so I'm concerned about it. That facts and opinions and feelings have been abandoned or, or historic Christianity has been abandoned for facts and feelings and, and, and confused that feelings are the, the most important thing. Look at our country today. Feelings are destroying us. And if truth could be established again, what a freedom that could come. And so we should look around and discern the times. We are living in Romans 1, by the way. Read the last 16 verses or so of Romans chapter 1. We are living in those days. We must, I would, I would say this, I'm not, a, I'm not a predictor, so don't mishear this, but I think we ought to keep an eye on what's going on in Israel right now. This has been a chaotic world. And things are going to finish up over there. So I just, I just want to encourage us, be aware. Be aware. We must look around and discern the reality of progressive Christianity. And then 14, Jesus says, he tells them plainly, look guys, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there. Because when I get there, I'm going to do something and it's going to lead to you believing. So let us go to him. You see, when we don't have discernment, we are robbed of deeper belief. And therefore, discernment connected to the words of Jesus is of the utmost importance in our lives. Look what Jesus says there. He's after he says, I'm not, he's not saying he's glad Lazarus died. He's just saying, I'm glad I wasn't there because I'm, I'm, I was going to do something anyway. And I'm glad we're not there so that when we get there, I'm going to do something so that you will believe. And he's after three belief groups. And we'll see it next week and this week. John eleven fourteen. he's after the disciples' belief. He's glad I'm not there that you may believe. Look at verse 25 of John 11. Jesus gets there. He's talking to Martha and Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then he asked Martha, Martha, do you believe this? Do you believe this? And then he's also after the belief of all of the villagers in Bethany. Look at verse 42. He's praying outside of the tomb of Lazarus. He said, I knew that you always hear me, but I said this out loud on account of those people standing around that they may believe that you sent me listen church one of the key for the fourth principle the traveling instructions of jesus is we must place our faith and trust in jesus you're not going to make it you're not going to make it everybody makes it to eternity not everybody makes it to heaven and if you want to make it to heaven then there must be a belief here. You don't get to believe. People in hell believe that God's real, by the way. Did you know that? They believe he's real. And you don't get to choose on the other side. There's no choice. There's no decision. There's no praying for salvation. And so he's after belief. Last thing. Travelers count the cost. Look at 16. Thomas has been given a bad rap, by the way, because of one moment on, the, on Resurrection Day where he's not present. 
Jesus shows up and he tells his brother, I, uh, I'm not going to believe unless I see it myself. And, and that wasn't a good move of his. It was kind of a shallow faith of his. But I think we've taken that one moment. And, and you know this. Aren't you glad that there's one moment of your life that doesn't have to stick with you for the rest of your days? We've kind of stuck this with Thomas, but Thomas shows us something completely opposite here. So Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, turned to them and said, let us go that we may die with him. Thomas got it. That God's people wait and when he moves, they walk with him. So if that means going to Jerusalem and it costing something, then you go with Jesus. They make the best use of the time by walking in the light. As they walk in the light, following Jesus, they discern the times. And they recognize truth from error. And as they do that, they know the light and the truth. And so they trust and believe that Jesus is the light. He is the truth. That He is the way. And He is the life. And then eventually, many believers, we don't have a clue about it, they get to a place where they have to count the cost. And I think in the days ahead, we've all, many of us, I've talked with many of you, and I know that you have talked with one another, we wonder what the future holds here. Is there going to be the losing of jobs because of faith? Are we going to have to lose some jobs because we can't buy the gender conversation? Are we going to have to make some really difficult decisions about things and count the cost. And again, we don't really have any clue about it. But Thomas was willing on this day to say, hey guys, where he goes, we go. So if it means going to Jerusalem, it's going to cost something, we're going to go. We like talking about martyr stories from the past they're kind of cool because they're from the past but I think we ought to hear martyr stories from 2020 so I'm going to close with this Cyrus worked as a factory maintenance technician he was married with three children he converted from Islam to Christianity under the guidance of a local pastor After his baptism, Cyrus began sharing the gospel at work, which caused his colleagues to persecute him. Eventually, he was fired because of his faith. Cyrus began receiving threats from local radicals. The threats increased in intensity and frequency so much that his family was forced to seek asylum in Turkey. A group called Help the Persecuted assisted Cyrus to try to get things ready for his new home in Turkey, but unfortunately he was not able to secure asylum, and he was forced to return to his home country, and almost immediately after his return, he was beaten to death. His bruised body was delivered to his wife and children. They were shocked and devastated, but did not report the murder to the police out of fear that the very same thing would be done to them. Hazine is a 33-year-old believer who is a woman, and she converted to Christianity last year. Hazine faced persecution in her hometown, including from her own family. 
she was forced to seek refuge in a neighboring city. Enraged, see if you can relate to this, anybody. Enraged, her family searched everywhere for her, and eventually one of her uncles posted a reward on social media for any information leading to where she was. Hazine had just been referred to help when someone online reported that she she was seen entering a local church. Hazine's family found her and they brought her back home and they hung her in public as a warning to any other would-be converts. Her death was considered an honor killing where family family members murder any of their own who they believe have brought dishonor on the family. Yaron was a young Christian. He shared the gospel with a close friend who betrayed his trust by reporting his new faith to his family. And as traditional conservative Muslims, Yaron's family could not tolerate his conversion. So they threatened him multiple times and insisted that he return to Islam. And despite their demands and knowing that he might be killed, Yaron remained steadfast in his faith. He refused to deny Jesus as his Savior. And for that, his cousins captured him and took him to the top of a four-story building and threw him off the roof. I want to live like that. I, I, I have no clue how to have that kind of faith. But I want that, don't you, Dan? I, I want to know what that's like. I want, to know what the, I want to know what it's like that Jesus is such a treasure in this jar of clay that he's worth the cost, that he's worth the cost, no matter what. None of us know the days ahead other than they're going to be continuing chaotic. But there is a God who has a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he sits on a sovereign throne. And Jesus here, headed to the most difficult week of his life, communicates to his followers. We wait when the Father says wait. We go when the Father says go. We make the best use of time by walking in the light, not in the darkness. And when we know the truth, we live by the light so that we can spiritually discern the lies in the church culture and the lies in the general culture. And as we know the light and the truth, we believe it. We stand on it. And we are willing to count the cost no matter what. These are Jesus' words. Traveling instructions to his people. Let's pray.